Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. Joining me on today's podcast is Dr Paul Young, direct from the World Congress of Intensive Care where he has just presented the results of the ICU ROC study. As many listeners will already know, Paul is an intensivist at the Wellington Hospital in New Zealand and is a prominent clinical researcher in the intensive care space. Paul, congratulations on the publication and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Paul, ICU ROCS seems to have been set up to compare the impact of a restrictive versus a liberal oxygen protocol in ventilated patients. And it seems based on the supposition that higher oxygen levels could be harmful to patients. What's the basis for this um, this assertion? Um, I mean, I guess at its most basic level, uh, it's it's kind of a fact that oxygen is an intrinsically reactive uh, molecule. It um, you know it reacts with uh, protein, it damages lipids, it damages. DNA, um, and although we're obviously entirely dependent on oxygen to survive, um, the concentrations of oxygen we've been breathing um, for the last 500 million years have been 21%, and really anything more than that is intrinsically a physiological stressor that the body has to deal with. Um, and so really the thing behind the hypothesis, I guess, for the ICU ROCS trial was this notion that avoiding exposure to more than 21% oxygen when possible um, might well improve patient outcomes. Paul, what's the, um, the evidence base leading up to this trial? Is there laboratory evidence of, of damage related to uh, hyperoxia? Uh, yes, so there's a reasonable uh, body of evidence um, suggesting that uh, exposure to higher levels of oxygen can cause oxidative stress, if you like, or an imbalance between um, oxidative and antioxidative mechanisms, um, and also um, a reasonable body of sort of early clinical data. Um, suggesting uh, potential harm with liberal oxygen regimens. Although, in general terms, I think I'd have to say that most or much of the existing evidence in the critical care sphere is of reasonably low quality, I think. It's fair to say. Is there a... A, um, a sense of the magnitude of the rise in oxygen exposure that's required to cause damage, or at least in a laboratory setting? Um, in a laboratory setting, there's um, some data that showed that really exposure to oxygen above 21% um, increases oxidative stress and production of oxygen-free free radicals. Now, um, you know, as to whether... Um, that's a clinically significant phenomenon or, or not. That's only um, something that you can tell by doing randomised controlled trials. Um, but I think the sort of old notion that, you know, if the oxygen's less than 60%, it's not going to cause you harm, isn't really supported by the basic science data. And really, I think uh, more... Um, 
balanced assessment of that literature would suggest really that there probably isn't a threshold um, level that defines, you know, oxygen oxidative stress being a um, risk versus not. It's probably a continuous exposure, I think. Now, your study looked at, at this restrictive strategy versus usual care. What do we know about what usual care is in the ICU at this present time? Well, I I think that it's very likely that that varies quite a lot um, in different places around the world. You know, so I, I think um, you know in in North America where um, the oxygen levels being the the ventilators are being controlled by um, respiratory therapists, and you know you might have two respiratory therapists looking after forty ventilated patients. I think um, you know exposure to hyperoxemia um, is probably more common than it is in places where it's kind of a nursing um, model where the nurses are titrating the oxygen on the ventilator all of the time. Um, But certainly the observational data that we have, even from Australia and New Zealand, suggested that exposure to hyperoxemia is pretty uh, common in um, mechanically ventilated intensive care patients. And interestingly, that most of the exposure to higher than normal levels of arterial oxygen actually occurs when the inspired oxygen concentration is relatively low. So, you know, initially patients come into the intensive care unit and they're often on a very high concentration of oxygen, which is rapidly down titrated. Um, but it's very common for patients to be breathing 30 or 40% oxygen uh, for many hours or even many days when, in fact, uh, if that oxygen was down titrated to 21%, they still wouldn't be in the hypoxemic range. Paul, can you walk us through the uh, the study protocol used in the restrictive arm? Yes, so uh, this is a really important point that I think... Um, it's very easy for people to uh, get kind of wrong, if you like. So um, we we used upper limit alarms, um, which were set to sound when the oxygen saturation um, was 97% or, or more, and we treated that as an emergency. You know, So we said, just like if the low oxygen alarm goes off, if the high oxygen alarm goes off, you have to do something straight away because the patient's at risk of hypoxemia and just like hypoxemia, that might be bad. And so you turn the oxygen down straight away. Um, Now, at the lower end, if the patient was at risk of hypoxemia, we took the same approach in both treatment arms. So um, essentially what we aimed to do with the restrictive arm was limit exposure to hyperoxemia without increasing exposure to hypoxemia. Now, the other aspect of of the intervention, and this is really critical, and I think the one where people that I've kind of had exchanges with, um, both uh, in person and on on Twitter as well, after the trial has been published, is that not only did we say that you had to have an oxygen saturation within an acceptable range, but also provided the oxygen saturation was above the lower limit that was acceptable, you had to use the lowest FiO2 possible and turn the oxygen down to 21% 
if you could do that without causing hypoxemia. And so really the entire kind of intervention is designed really to use the lowest possible amount of oxygen without exposing the patients to hypoxemia. Paul, how confident are you that the two groups have been treated differently enough to detect a meaningful effect if there was one? Um, so I think the answer to that is um, we certainly achieve very substantial separation in terms of the amount of uh, inspired oxygen and the amount of time that patients spent breathing 21% oxygen while they were uh, invasively mechanically ventilated. So patients who were in the conservative arm spent around a third of all hours whilst invasively mechanically ventilated on 21% oxygen, and in the usual care group, they spent no time uh, like that. Um, now, the exposure to uh, saturations of greater than 97% was also substantially higher in the usual care arm than in the conservative arm. But, you know, I can't say that if uh, there hadn't been greater separation that there wouldn't have been a difference. I suspect that the only way in which greater separation could have been achieved was either, well, there are two ways, really. One would have been by making the conservative arm um, you know, more aggressive and exposing patients to hypoxemia. And really there's no data whatsoever to suggest that doing that would improve patient outcomes. The other, the other option would be to systematically target hyperoxemia in the um, usual care arm or to make it no longer a usual care arm but a liberal oxygen arm. And uh, if we'd done that, we would have found, we, we, we might have found something different, um, but we wouldn't have answered the clinically relevant question because we would have uh, been comparing two treatment arms that don't exist in usual practice. It is an important point, though, that um, whether these results apply in settings where usual care is more liberal and it appeared in our, uh, in our study, um, is un unknown. Um, and people have to, I guess, exercise their judgment about that and uh, interpret the ICU ROX trial in the context of the rest of the literature. So what were the results of the study, Paul? Yeah, so the, um, the primary finding was that um, conservative oxygen therapy didn't improve outcomes, or more specifically, it didn't increase the number of days that patients spent alive and free from invasive mechanical ventilation compared with usual care. Um, and in fact, uh, one of the key secondary outcomes, which is day 180 mortality, um, by point estimate, the day 180 mortality was higher um, in the conservative group than in the um, usual care group. Um, and so I think... Um, the important thing about that is it does provide a degree of reassurance that um, the very substantial increased risk of death suggested by the previous single-centre oxygen ICU trial, which was published in JAMA, is unlikely to be a, a, a true effect. And in fact, standard oxygen regimens um, are 
likely to be safe. What about the subgroup analysis, Paul? Was there any subgroup that benefited, and if so, why do you think that was? Yeah, so um, one of the really interesting things about um, the study was the very um, strong evidence um, in statistical terms of heterogeneity of treatment effect. Um, and uh, it really looked like uh, the subgroup of patients with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy uh, who were allocated to um, conservative oxygen therapy did better. Um, they were more likely to survive and had better neurological outcomes. Um, now, those data are really hypothesis-generating, but they, they are consistent with um, basic science and with observational data that suggests uh, conservative oxygen regimens might be um, better in that patient group. Um, interestingly, though, there were also um, signals in the opposite direction. So patients who had um, acute brain pathologies other than hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy will... Um, by, by point estimates, at least, those patients seemed like they did better with liberal oxygen. Um, and another important group that's not in the main uh, manuscript, but which, we, um, have ju which I've just uh, submitted a, a secondary uh, paper about, is the patients with sepsis. And again, in that group of patients, it really looked like um, liberal oxygen um, or usual care oxygen was probably better, and there was certainly a, a potential signal that conservative oxygen regimens might be harmful in that group of patients. Paul, in this study, there were 21 to 22 ventilator-free days in each of the groups. Is ventilator-free yeah. days a discrete enough marker to be able to detect a difference in a group like this? Um, I mean, I guess... So ventilator-free days is essentially a composite endpoint that combines mortality because everyone who dies gets zero ventilator-free days with the duration of mechanical ventilation um, in survivors. Um, and so it's a continuous outcome, which means that you get a bit more uh, statistical power than you do um, when you uh, use a binary outcome like uh, landmark mortality. Um, but I, I would have to say my take on the um, data uh, from ICU rocks is really that they um, restore equipoise, not that they are definitive. So I'm very strongly of the view that... Um, we do not yet have sufficient uh, data to say that we know the answer about what oxygen level is appropriate for uh, mechanically ventilated patients in the intensive care unit. Um, and in fact, I think it's highly likely that uh, the correct amount of oxygen varies for different uh, conditions. And I think the ICU rocks data would support that assertion. Um, and that really from here, we need to now move on to um, detect much smaller effect sizes and to, uh, and I guess to design trials that can deal with that kind of heterogeneity of treatment effect. 
um, in order to provide us with clinically directive data. Really, I think, um, you know, the ICU ROCS trial, in my mind, um, is a phase two trial that sets the scene for uh, the definitive uh, work that will provide the answers that clinicians at the bedside ultimately need. Paul, it's necessarily difficult, of course, to blind operational staff in these sorts of studies. How concerned are you that this influences results in those types of um, investigations? Yeah, you know, um, I think that's a really valid and interesting point. So one of the things that I thought might well happen in the trial, and one of the reasons why um, we chose ventilator-free days, was I thought that it was entirely plausible that changing the delivery of oxygen might actually change the behaviour of the clinicians. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So, so all of a sudden, if you aggressively turn the patient-inspired oxygen down to 21%, it becomes very, very difficult when you walk past the bed space and see the patient who's ventilated on 21% oxygen to not say, oh, why don't we just take out that tube? Um, and, you know, I, I think it's an entirely possible that extubation decisions were influenced by the fact that the clinicians could see the effects of the treatment group assignment. Um, but actually, I, I was never really too concerned about that because, in fact, that is part of the intervention. So um, if it had been that that actually meant that the number of ICU free days went up in patients allocated to the conservative oxygen therapy arm and there were no associated harms, then that would have been a good reason to use conservative oxygen therapy because patients don't like to be on ventilators. And uh, families also, I think, um, are reassured when their relative no longer requires life support. Um, now, as it turned out, there was, uh, there was no difference. And I think with respect to the mortality data, it's pretty unlikely, at least to my way of thinking, that um, knowledge of treatment group assignments could conceivably have uh, altered whether people lived or died. I mean, I think that's just very unlikely. Paul, the results seem to be at odds with the previously published single-centre study and a recent meta-analysis. What do you think the difference are, just speculating for a moment, between your study and those previous studies? Well, you know, I mean, I think when you look at the oxygen ICU trial, the oxygen ICU trial was a trial in a heterogeneous cohort of intensive care patients who are far less sick than uh, the patients enrolled in the ICU ROCS trial. So only two-thirds of the patients were mechanically ventilated and only a third of the patients had shock. Um, yet they reported that the mortality with conservative oxygen therapy was reduced from 20% to 10%. Um, they stopped their trial early on the basis of an unplanned interim analysis without the use of a priori stopping rules. And, um, and essentially, you know, if the treatment effect that I've just 
described to you is true, then it would mean that half of all deaths in intensive care were attributable to oxygen toxicity. Um, and that's just so far removed from the clinician experience about how patients die in the intensive care unit that I think uh, it just it just cannot be it cannot be true. Um, and so I think it was always uh, certain on on you know biological rationale reasons alone that the effect in that single centre Italian trial was exaggerated. Um, now that's not to say that there's no effect, um, but I think that uh, that there's really no chance that the effect that they described in that study uh, could be a true effect. Now, if you look at the IOTA systematic review and meta-analysis, does very heavily weighted by, um, by the the oxygen ICU trial is very heavily weighted in that analysis. So. Um, just over a third of all the events come from the oxygen ICU trial, um, and a substantial majority of the, a substantial number of the other patients come from uh, trials in patients with myocardial infarction and stroke. Um, and so I think really the reality is that before ICU rocks, we really did not have um, sufficient data. Uh, that were kind of clinically directive about oxygen therapy in the intensive care unit. Um, and, and so for me, at least, I think that what ICU ROCS does is um, it restores equipoise and it, it provides a degree of reassurance, but it doesn't provide a definitive answer. Finally, Paul, what's next in this um, this phase of research? So, you know, we're well advanced in terms of uh, moving on with the next phase, which is uh, the Megarox trial. And the Megarox trial is going to be a 40,000 patient multi-centre international registry embedded trial. That means that the data essentially uh, don't need to be collected individually. They don't need to be collected specifically for the trial. They'll be obtained from existing registry data sources. And that trial will um, include pre-specified subgroups within it that will have, um, that are kind of nested trials within the overall uh, sample size envelope that are supported by appropriate uh, power calculations. Um, And uh, those subgroups will be patients with sepsis, patients with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, and patients with acute brain pathologies. Um, And... uh, Ultimately, that trial will, I think, provide sufficient statistical power to confirm or refute a clinically, um, you know, I guess a minimum clinically important difference in mortality. In the event that there's no treatment heterogeneity, um, then we would, and, and no effect seen, we would expect the 95% confidence intervals to uh, exclude the possibility of it. Of, uh, increasing or decreasing mortality by well under 1%, which I think would be enough to uh, give us a definitive answer. Paul, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Congratulations once again on the publication of ICU Rocks, and uh, it's been enlightening to talk to you as always. 
No worries. Hey, thanks very much for your interest and thanks very much for your time. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. For more interviews just like this, visit our website at osla.force.com.